we live today in a culture that does not place great value on patience. Whatever we do, we want to do it fast. Whatever we get, we want to get it fast. We want to lose weight fast. So we have special programs and special pills. We want to get from London to Scotland fast. So we need a high-speed rail link. We want faster internet connections. And even the process of assessing potential boyfriends or girlfriends has gone high speed. If you download the Tinder app onto your phone, you can swipe your way through dozens of people's profiles in a couple of moments. Have a quick look. Swipe left, no. Swipe right, yes. And in the midst of all this, the Bible calls us to patience. We're waiting as God's people for our king to return and claim his kingdom. We're waiting for him to come and put every wrong right and wipe away every tear. But we are called to wait for it patiently. And most of the time we find that very hard. We want the high-speed kingdom. We want the high-speed solutions to our problems and difficulties. But this morning we're going to see an example of patience. And it's an example that I hope will help each of us with our own patience. We're turning again to 1 Samuel. And in recent weeks, as we've looked at this, we have been following David through the mountains and the caves of Israel. Many years before, Saul had been anointed king of Israel, but God's spirit had departed from Saul. David had been anointed as the new king. But at this point in time, it has been many years since Samuel sought David out and anointed him and promised him the kingdom. The fulfillment of that promise doesn't seem to be getting any closer. David's days are taken up not ruling Israel, but trying to stay one step ahead of Saul. And alongside that, David is now responsible for a bunch of distressed and discontented people who have attached themselves to him. I'm sure David feels that his kingdom can't come fast enough. And in our passage this morning, David is presented with what looks like the perfect opportunity to end the discomfort, to escape the stress. And enjoy the glory of the crown and the throne in the palace. It all seems to be right there for him to seize hold of. The passage we're going to look at is 1 Samuel chapter 24. In the church Bible it's page 296 and in the large print 455. I'm going to read the whole of 1 Samuel 24. After David returned, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel 
and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's word. And this is a passage about patience. Not just patience in general, but the kind of patience that's needed when you are waiting for the kingdom of God. 
At this point, as the chapter begins, David must be mightily sick of being chased by Saul. Chapter 23 ended with David and his men escaping by the skin of their teeth. It was an incredibly close call. But just before Saul captured David, he had to break off the chase and go and deal with an attack from the Philistines. But it's only a short reprieve for David. Because at the start of chapter 24, Saul's back. This time, we're told, with 3,000 able, literally chosen, young men. Maybe Saul feels that bringing his full army has been slowing him down too much. Now he brings a smaller group that's made up of his very best men. These are his special forces. And Saul's intelligence network is working well. You'll notice, somebody's always telling Saul where David is. Here he gets a tip-off that David's hiding in En Gedi. And during the search of En Gedi, Saul needs to go to the toilet. Presumably, it wasn't very kingly to go in front of your men. So Saul takes his royal dignity into a cave. The Bible doesn't make a habit of mentioning this sort of thing. But this particular toilet trip is significant. It's significant because of who else is in that cave. I suppose the only thing worse than having people watching you go to the toilet is not knowing people are watching you go to the toilet. But that's what happens to Saul. These are the kind of caves where the back of one often opens out into another. And as Saul enjoys his moment of privacy, he has no idea there's a heated debate going on. David's men are over the moon. In verse 4, they whisper to David, This is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands, for you to deal with as you wish. Now there is no evidence the Lord ever had said this. At least, he has not said it specifically about Saul. In chapter 23, the Lord promised to give the Philistines into David's hand. And it seems David's men are now applying that promise to Saul. Look, David, this can't be coincidence. Surely this is a gift from God. With one slice, you can end this miserable time in the wilderness. You can claim the rest and the throne and the glory God has promised you. And you can have your revenge on this evil man. Would you have agreed with David's men? Would you have urged David on? Well, look again what actually happens. The end of verse 4. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's rope. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his rope. He said to his man, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his man, 
and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Not only does David not kill Saul, he is conscience-stricken over what he did do, cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. Why? Well, to us, this just seems like an incredible piece of skill, being able to get that close to Saul and get away unnoticed. And he hasn't harmed Saul, so why is David so upset? Well, this is Saul's royal robe. And by cutting a piece of that robe, David is saying symbolically, I'm taking this into my own hands. I'm taking the kingdom. I'm sick of waiting. But now, as David looks at that piece of robe in his hand, he regrets what he did in that burst of adrenaline that he had. He knows that the kingdom is not his to seize by force. That's how other kings get their crowns. But God's anointed one does not seize his kingdom. It's God's to give when God's time is right. No doubt David's men are either angry with him or they think he's gone mad. Probably both. These men want out of this life of discomfort and homelessness. They want a bit of glory. So they say, if you've lost the nerve to do it yourself, David, let us get him before this chance is gone. But verse 7 says, David sharply rebuked his men. Literally, the text says, he tore them in two. He wants to stamp out this idea that they can take a shortcut to the kingdom. God's king follows God's path to the kingdom. God's king receives the kingdom in God's way and in God's time. David is God's Messiah, and he knows there are no shortcuts to God's kingdom. We've seen plenty of times in this book that David is here to teach us about God's ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus faced the same temptation as David. His father had promised him the kingdom. But those closest to Jesus wanted him to take a shortcut to that kingdom. Mark tells us about the day Peter made his great announcement You, Jesus, are the Messiah. You're God's king. No doubt at that point Peter could see the way forward. Jesus would rise to power and Peter would ride along on his coattails. But immediately after Peter's big announcement, Mark tells us this. He, that's Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. 
Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. When Peter heard about suffering and difficulty, he said, No way, Jesus. You're God's Messiah. God's Messiah deserves glory, not suffering. And Peter was probably thinking, And I'd like my share in your glory without suffering. Peter wanted the shortcut. He wanted to grab hold of glory. And later, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus... Peter started thrashing about with his sword until Jesus said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, Jesus is saying, I will come to my kingdom, but it will be in the way my Father has mapped out for me. It will be through the cross. Jesus is saying, I will wait for God to lift me up to power instead of trying to seize power myself. That's the mindset of God's Messiah. First David, then Jesus. And here's the application for us. It's easy for us to start thinking like Peter and like David's man. It's easy for us to start thinking and assuming we can skip over difficulty and frustration. To think there should be a way around suffering. To think that we deserve to have things easy in this life. But God's Messiah did not have it easy. He didn't come to his throne by some kind of shortcut. Neither David nor Jesus did. And Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Following Jesus means walking the same road that he walked. When the book of Acts tells us about the apostles strengthening new believers, what was their message to those new believers? They said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When we sign up to follow God's king, the rewards are beyond what we can even imagine. But we have not signed up for an easy ride. There are no shortcuts to the rewards ahead of us. The book of Revelation says to God's people, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. The book of Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
As Christians, we can be caught up just like everybody else in a mindset of impatience. If it doesn't appear now on the screen in front of us, if it doesn't get delivered to our doorstep this afternoon, if we can't sort this problem out in an hour, then forget it. We'll move on to something else. We'll move on to somebody else. But as Christians, we are called to a life of patient endurance and faithfulness. Perseverance. The difficulties in our lives are unlikely to be solved in a day or two. So when we find ourselves longing for shortcuts, let's consider the one we're following. Let's focus on being faithful where God has put us with the responsibilities he's given us. And in his time, he will raise us up and give us the kingdom. Well, back in the cave, throughout all the arguing and the creeping about, Saul has been blissfully ignorant. He has no idea what's been going on behind him. And he saunters back out of the cave towards his men. And what happens next shows us that patience lives by bold trust in God. Maybe we wondered whether David had lost his nerve in the cave. But we immediately find out that is not the case. Verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Notice what David is doing. He's just given away his position to Saul and Saul's 3,000 men. David has not lost his bottle. Yes, he let Saul go, But David is not content with what's going on. He's not going to pretend to like this injustice that Saul is dealing out. It would be a mistake to hear this talk about patience and think that it means being weak-kneed or not really caring about suffering and injustice. But that does not describe David here. He hasn't harmed Saul. He hasn't taken the shortcut, but he is not going to gloss over what Saul's doing. In front of all of Saul's men, David stands and argues his case. I've never wronged you, Saul. Just now I could have killed you, but I didn't. And yet you are hunting me down to kill me. David points out the injustice of it all. But clearly, he doesn't expect justice to come from Saul. That's not why David has stepped out of the cave. David wants all these people to know that he's looking to God for justice. That's where David is putting his trust. Look down to verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. 
As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. There is nothing weak about what David does here. He does not pretend that Saul's a nice guy. He doesn't pretend he's happy to be persecuted by Saul. No, David appeals to God to deliver him and vindicate him and avenge him. So many of the Psalms are like this. Biblical patience is not weak. Biblical patience takes its grievances to God and it lives with bold trust that God will put things right. That takes courage. It takes courage to live our lives trusting that God's justice will be done. David says to Saul, I am not an evildoer. That's why I didn't kill you in the cave. And David says, not only are you unjust, Saul, you're just crazy. Wasting the country's time and wealth, chasing me around the hills. David says, I'm no more a threat to you than a dead dog. Or a flea on a dead dog. You're just ridiculous, Saul. And one day, God will prove that. David is showing that this patience we've been talking about, it doesn't mean being a passive pushover. Biblical patience flows from bold, confident trust in God. That's what enabled David to be patient back in the cave. Without trust in God, David would have slit Saul's throat. And as God's people today, we will never endure patiently and faithfully unless we're willing to take our frustrations and our pain and boldly hand them over to God. Often the Christian life amounts to saying, I don't like this. I don't like this unfair situation. I don't like this rotten person but I'm going to give it over to God, to his justice. And I'm going to trust him enough to go on doing good instead of evil. The title of Psalm 142 says it was written by David when he was in the cave. Maybe this cave, maybe some other cave, but it was certainly a cave he was hiding in because Saul was unjustly hunting him down. And in Psalm 142, David says, I lift my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. The Bible shows us God's people doing that again and again. Biblical patience is not indifference. 
It's not about trying to be Zen and pretend you're not bothered about anything. No, we are able to be patient in the face of troubles because we take our troubles to God. We pour out our complaint to God. We lift our voice to him. We ask him to consider us and vindicate us. And then we leave it with him. And we go on doing good instead of evil. Is that normal behavior? No, it's not. Saul recognizes that it's not normal. Overall, Saul puts in quite a performance here. Verse 16 says, when David finished speaking, Saul wept aloud. I suspect he weeps because he realizes how close he came to death back in the cave. That's certainly not remorse. Saul will soon be back on the hunt for David. And David knows that. That's why despite what Saul says here, David doesn't go home at the end of this chapter. He knows it's not safe. Despite what Saul says. But in among all the crocodile tears and the Shakespearean performance, Saul does get something right here. He knows that what David is doing, leaving justice in God's hands, that is not normal. This way of doing things is not the way this world does things. This approach to life is the approach of God's anointed. Look at verse 19. Saul says, When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Saul will not bow to God's king. He will not join God's king, but he recognizes God's king. This kind of bold trust in God, this patience to leave the present and the future in God's hands, That's not the world Saul lives in. It's another world breaking into Saul's world. That's what's happened here. And much later, that other world broke in in a greater, fuller way. This is how Peter describes the patience of Jesus Christ. Peter says, He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And, Peter says in that chapter, we are to follow in his steps. One day, every wrong will be put right but it will be done in God's time. It will be done in God's way. We have to have the kind of patience that trusts him 
and that keeps on doing good instead of evil. That kind of patience is not easy for us to learn. It wasn't easy for Peter. Peter had a hard time letting go of his sword. But he learned to follow in the steps of his Messiah. And so can we. We're going to respond to God's word and we're going to ask for his help as we sing together, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. And then rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King.